one of the occupational hazards of this uh, job is <laughs> as you, as I, uh, prepare my Dharma talks, the topic seems to pervade my being. And that's useful to the extent that it helps draw up experience and understanding and uh, ways of practicing. But when the topic is aversion, it's really unpleasant. <laughs> so I had to ask Kamala for a little advice on how to lift myself out of this <laughs> mental state so that I could begin this talk. And she said, well, remember what you used to say, how... Together we balance each other out, as all of us in this room uh, together balance uh, each other out. Uh, I believe that Kamala is unrealistically optimistic, <laughs> and she believes that I am unrealistically pessimistic. And it's kind of a <laughs> an expression of our basic personality types. So we're balanced. <laughs> Unfortunately, my half of the balance is more unpleasant. <laughs> but I know I have a lot of company here in the room. So <laughs> One of the uh, inevitable challenges of on this path of opening to the deepest truths, both the relative and the deepest truths of our existence, is coming to know the difference between the unpleasantness that is inevitable in our life and the suffering or the reactivity to it that is optional. We live in a world, and we live in a time, we live in uh, the conditions of our culture, of our families, of our government, the world, where there is an extraordinary amount that we could look and say, this is wrong. This just shouldn't be happening this way. There is a tremendous amount of violence, abuse, fear, uh, manipulation of one sort or another. And we see the, the toll on our hearts is that we close down, that the unpleasantness of so much of what we are asked to live with is so abrasive to the most sensitive part of our heart that we shut down, we close off. And in that process, we inevitably feel alienated, alone, and fearful. Aversion in all of its manifestations from irritation to wars has and is a very deeply conditioned response which apparently is even sanctioned as okay for many of us, for much of us in our life. I want to talk about aversion tonight because we all resort to it at times. And it is the most tormented mental state that is optional. If we understand that, you know, it really is optional. And that we can develop some tools for working with it. The Pali word for, that's usually translated as aversion, is dosa. 
and it covers the, the broadest spectrum of aversive reactions that we might have, that we at times fall into. But essentially it is an inability or an unwillingness to face the facts. Sometimes we strike out against what we don't like, what is unpleasant with anger, irritation, hatred, impatience, ill will. Sometimes our aversive reaction is subtler. It's just a turning away from, out of fear or annoyance. And sometimes our aversive reaction is a shutting down within, as in depression, frustration, or disappointment. The range of unpleasantness is infinite. Unpleasant sensations in the body, pain, ache, disease, unpleasant emotions, some that are well-known, loss, grief, loneliness, stress, some that are not so well-known, and yet we feel moved by them, and unpleasant thoughts, thoughts of the unknown future, thoughts of the unsatisfactory past, competition, comparison, wanting. Even thoughts can be unpleasant. So it's helpful for us to begin to recognize how aversion manifests and to develop some tools for working with it. Dosa, or aversion, has the characteristic of being fierce, ferocious. And what that means is we look on the world with intolerant eyes. That we really use our view of the world to aggressively, sometimes harshly, brutally, not accept the way things are. In Hawaii, there's a, there's a phrase of giving, called giving someone stink eye. You know, where you just, you give them that look, which lets them know that they're not nice, or that they're not accepted that way. And it's really a, a way of acting out maybe most gently, just by looking, but acting out our inability, our unwillingness to accept, to tolerate, to even acknowledge oh, this is the way it is. Essentially, aversion is an unpleasant mental feeling. Domanasa Vedana, or a feeling of mental unease. It's as if we were feeling something's not okay here. We may, we may recognize it, we may not. But part of the problem is that we're not seeing things clearly. All aversion, of course, it is accompanied by the unclarity, not seeing things, events, people, as they truly are. And when aversion arises in the mind, it causes us to focus exclusively on the unpleasant nature, or the unpleasant characteristic, or the unpleasant part of the situation or the person. And the, the good part, the, the pleasant, the nice, the, the acceptable part of that person or the event, we don't see. Aversion blinds us to it. And so because we're only seeing a part of the situation, we can cut it off, exclude it, 
push it away, strike out at it. The foundation delusion is that we believe that that person or that thing or that event makes me mad. They do only if we give them the power to. Only if we don't recognize that it's we who make ourselves angry, irritated, mad, impatient. The other, the person, the event, the situation is just unfolding. It's just who it is. It's just how it is due to its own conditions. If we don't see that, if we can't see that, then we fall into the blame game as a way of avoiding our own responsibility for the pain of our own aversion. So aversion is accompanied by delusion. It's also accompanied by restlessness. A mind that is agitated, skittish, unable to, in this case, be with it, be with the way things are, be with the unpleasantness, unable to open to the feeling of discomfort. And as I mentioned, because we cut off, push away, shut out the unpleasant, we will feel alone, isolated, cut off, alienated. And that can never be a state of ease. We'll always be looking for, searching for the way to get back, to, to get reconnected with the part that we've cut off, that we've shut out, that we fear. But in that blindness, in that primary delusion, restlessness, we do act out our aversion. And when we're filled with aversion, we can do and say things that are extraordinarily harmful to ourselves and to others. Because in the heat of it, in the heat of anger. We lose a sense of what is right and wrong, what is uh, respectful, what is careful. And we just say and do what we will as an expression of this temporary mental state of aversion. We see it in comedy, but we know it in our own lives. You know, someone gets angry and they slam the door, as if the door was somehow responsible for their anger, or they kick the car, or they uh, do something that's obviously not an appropriate, it's not addressing the situation at all, but it's just an acting out of intolerance. What we do to the wall, or what we do to the car, is nothing compared to what we do to our heart and the hearts of others when we act out our aversion. Now, anything can be a source of the arising of aversion. We can see something, we can smell something, we can hear something, we can think something, we can feel sensations. But the eyes don't hate. The ears aren't frustrated. The nose doesn't feel disgust. The tongue doesn't feel disappointment. And the body doesn't feel fear. It's the mind, it's the heart that is aversive. The eyes function to see pleasant and unpleasant equally well. Same with the ears, same with the nose, and all of the senses. But it's the mind that reacts. It's the mind that is intolerant. Aversion functions in the 
course of our life, in the day-to-day flow of our life, as that strong emotional reaction to the unpleasant, which is karma. Every moment of aversion is a karmic act, whether it's thought, spoken, or acted on. And if we, if no one has given a talk yet, there will be one, I'm sure, soon, on <clears throat> the law of karma. How actions taken from an unskillful, deluded, aversive place in the heart are sure to produce unpleasant results. And if for no other reason than this alone, it should be cause enough for us to pay very careful attention to when aversion arises in the mind and what we do with it, how we act it out, or how we, you know, take it on as the time and the place for practice. I just said that the body doesn't feel fear. Fear is a mental state. But when aversion arises, as with any other mental state, it conditions how the body feels. It is one of the conditions, conditioning agents for what we feel in the body. And so it gives us a clue or it offers us a key as to how to get a handle on any manifestation of aversion, to begin to explore how it feels in the body. I'll talk more about that later. But we know that chronic mental states result in chronic physical patterns of holding, stress on the organs, and I'm not sure what the current understanding is, but those who have a lot of aversion do have some predominant uh, debilitating physical conditions. So our practice here is to begin to identify the unpleasant experiences of our life and to be able to recognize them prior to the turning away, the striking out, the running away from them. Or if we find ourselves caught in anger, fear, disappointment, frustration, judgment, to then take it on as a a place of practice so that we do not continue to strengthen the habit of aversive reactivity. It's helpful to know, or it's helpful to have heard of the first noble truth, the truth of dukkha, or the truth of suffering. If we could really take that in, if we could really see that our practice here does confirm it, it would be such a relief if we could stop struggling against unpleasantness. It would be such a support for us to be able to acknowledge unpleasantness. It's a given. If we don't get caught in reactivity to it, we suffer less. But in order to work with any form of aversion, we need to recognize it. This is the first step, or the first key in working with any form of aversion, is to recognize it. And it happens, as with any of the other hindrances, that we can be lost in a field, a pervasive field of aversion, and not recognize it. Sometimes after two or three weeks in a retreat like this, there is a growing sense of 
disappointment with our practice, frustration with our practice, um, some sort of dissatisfaction with the way things are going up to this point. And even though we're following through with our daily sittings, walking, you know, doing what we do, there, there can be this lingering and maybe growing sense of this isn't what I came for. Recognizing that state of mind is necessary before we can begin to work with it. So in such a situation, what is it that is really the unpleasantness? And what is it that is really the aversion? How can we separate the two? The dukkha is the dissatisfaction, this feeling of a lack of uh, fulfillment or our unmet expectations. And when our expectations are not met, there's an unpleasant feeling. When we are disappointed, there is an, uh, an unpleasant feeling. We feel stuck. We feel uh, powerless. We feel uh, impotent sometimes in, in moving off of this place of being disappointed, being uh, unfulfilled, unsatisfied. And it's important to, to begin to notice the, the cycle of impotence that we sometimes fall into, where initially we may feel a little disappointed, and then that, that uh, spirals into some severe frustration and a sense of helplessness, leading to hopelessness, depression, and despair. And, and doubt sprouts, and uh, you know we're on the phone trying to make arrangements to leave. A few people today even said, you know, I think it's about time the retreat was over for me. It's not. But what we get caught in is this cycle of uh, dissatisfaction, unmet expectations, and just, just get kind of caught in this web of aversion without even recognizing it. It's just a lingering background that comes to the front the longer we practice. Suzuki Roshi said, It is when your practice is rather greedy that you become discouraged with it. So you should be grateful that you have a sign or warning signal to show you the weak point in your practice. You become discouraged with your practice when it has been idealistic. When we're attached to something, we don't see the way things truly are. We're attached to our idea of how it should be, could be, hope for it to be. And part of the practice is to expose those hopes, those dreams, those fantasies about practice, about ourself, to put them aside and to come into a clarity and a knowledge of the way things are. recognizing the manifestation of aversion. The second is to the second step once we recognize that the aversion has risen in the mind or that it's growing or that it's that, that we're in a uh, sharp reaction to something is to exercise some restraint. The habits of aversion are very powerful. And they can, we can act on them without thinking. I had an experience of this uh, earlier this year. Uh, Kamala had a, a doctor's appointment and that she had to wait some several weeks for. And I, I went with her to the doctor's office. And we got into the office and uh, we were on time for our 
11.30 appointment or whatever it was. And I looked around the office and there was about six, maybe six or seven people sitting there waiting for the doctor. And I said, uh, what are these people doing here? You know, and she said, you know, the, the clerk said, well, they're, you know, they're ahead of you. They're waiting for their appointment. And I was uncomfortable with that, <laughs> at least. And, uh, you know, I come from the, from the business school of time is money. And, uh, you know, um, for me to sit around and wait is costing me money. Well, I wasn't content to pick up a Newsweek or a Time. I just had this uh, kind of explosive reaction of impatience. I just, I just said, well, why don't you just get another appointment? You know, it wasn't my appointment. <laughs> it was really uh, very unconsiderate, actually. I said, why don't you get another appointment? And the, my impatience was just overwhelming. It just, it just came out and got, got out in the room and I couldn't get it back in here. <laughs> and so Kamala got up and made another appointment and we left. And for some time after that, I was just not just impatient because I'd finally gotten out of there, but I was angry at Kamala for not being as impatient as I was. <laughs> Well, it didn't take long before she met my energy, and um, <laughs> uh, helped me see just how uh, painful this impatience was. And when I could could see it, and I, up to this point, I didn't really see it. I was just justified in my action. I was just narrating this self-righteous justification for getting out of that office as quick as we could. But once I saw that here was this mental state that I'd gotten totally identified with, then I stopped suffering. I was still impatient, but I wasn't locked into this uh, kind of blindly. I knew I had some uh, opportunity then to exercise some restraint, to just, okay, back. I was ready to go back and start sit and wait in the office, but... We were out of there, so I didn't. But when Kamala said to me, you know, this is really not okay, I said, you know, I know it's not okay, but this, my impatience is a lifetime practice. I think we have to have that understanding for our aversion. And not just expect that somehow we're going to see it and let go of it and suddenly everything's going to be okay. But really to be kind to ourselves, and even though we see our aversion, and this is the painful place in practice, when we see how angry, how judgmental, how impatient we are, and can't do anything about it, except not act it out. To have the understanding that it is a deeply conditioned habit, and it may take a lifetime of practice to become familiar, to not get caught every time it arises. Patience. It's interesting. Patience, the word patience comes from a word meaning to suffer. And I don't think so much that, you know, being patient is suffering. It's rather that being patient allows us to feel the suffering that's already happening. It doesn't cause the suffering so much as it allows us to feel how much we're suffering already. To be able to bear with you know, that pain, that emotional pain, that physical pain, that discomfort in our hearts, in our bodies. One of the verses of the Dhammapada, one of the short verses of the Buddha, says, Kanti paramam tapo titika. Patience is a supreme virtue. And our teacher Upandita used to say often, 
no matter how good your practice is, if it isn't done with patience, it really isn't going anywhere. So we really need to look carefully at this form of aversion, intolerance to the way things are, and be careful not to get caught in acting it out, and rather exercise some restraint when we acknowledge it or recognize it, and then to exercise some restraint by just not suppressing, but rather acknowledging openly and acknowledging that it's a practice. A yogi came the other day and acknowledged that he had wanted to use the payphone downstairs in the annex. And while he went downstairs, he got to the phone and there was someone um, on the phone, so he, so he decided to wait. And he waited for five minutes and then ten minutes and he was wondering now, when's this guy or when's this other person going to get done? And he started to get a little irritated. And then after 15 minutes, he started to get impatient. And after a little while longer, his impatience turned to resentment, his resentment turned to anger. And then after some amount of time, when he was boiling with anger, he took a look at this person in the phone booth who was just happily chatting, chatting away. And he asked himself, who's suffering? <laughs> The guy, the person on the phone, is just doing his thing. Maybe he's just, that's the way it is. Who's suffering? And when he saw that, that he, he was suffering, waiting for the phone, intolerant of this other's behavior, he could let it go. He could let go of that acting out, the impatience, the anger, the ready to say something, open the door and say something. <laughs> And when the person finally came out of the phone booth, he felt like, uh, you know, just expressing his appreciation for what he had come to know about himself from just uh, paying attention to his aversion, his impatience, his anger. As with any expression of, or any manifestation of aversion, we should ask ourselves, Who's suffering? Because so often, with aversion, we get caught in a self-righteous monologue that defends our feeling. Of course I should be angry. They shouldn't be on the phone anyway, or at least not for that long. And can't they see I'm here? And can't they be more sensitive? And, and if it's not the phone, then it's going through the lunch line. You know, can't they move a little faster? Can't they not take so much and leave a little more for us? Or whatever it is. And the, 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 the monologue that justifies our irritation and anger is so self-righteous. If we don't see that, if we don't feel how we get caught in the aversion and the self-righteousness, we'll have no restraint. And then we'll do. And we'll say those things that cause us and the others harm. So we recognize, we come to kind of clear away the dust and, and see the subtler states of aversion. The, 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 the obvious states of aversion, they're pretty obvious, but they're subtle states of aversion to recognize and then to exercise some restraint. The third movement in working with any of the hindrances and all of the forms of aversion is to reframe our understanding. In spite of what we say, it still happens that in the midst of practice, when we are overwhelmed by one of the hindrances or some form of aversion, that this belief comes with it. I gotta wait till this is over before I can practice. 
And really, the Buddha said, this is the very place for establishing mindfulness. These very difficult mental states. And one of the more seductive mental states or forms of aversion is depression. The feeling of being oppressed by the conditions of our life, being cut off from ourselves and others, feeling very weak, uh, bored, disinterested, and just a general feeling of darkness in our hearts and minds. Within it, of course, we feel very vulnerable. We don't trust ourselves or others. Certainly not happy. And it's easy for the belief or the thought, I can't practice from here, from this place. I have to wait till it's over. I have to do I have to get rid of this before I can continue with my meditation. Or for before I can you know, undertake, you know, mindfulness. When we're caught <clears throat> in depression, or when we're caught in a, such a low, energized state of mind, and there's no mindfulness present, then we really have no anchor within ourselves. We're lost in there. We, we're, we're just drifting in the, the darkness of our hearts, of our minds. And mindfulness cannot act as the, the light or the, the inner mentor that it is. We don't know what's right or wrong. We're not carefully observing. We, 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 we don't know how we feel. Because of the, the, the unwillingness, really, to open to the feeling of depression or the depressed feelings in the body, in the mind. A couple of years ago, um, my mother died just before the three-month course started, a couple of weeks, actually, before the three-month course started. And I was scheduled to teach, so I came. But there was a period of time I just felt out of it. I couldn't get connected with people. I didn't feel connected to myself. I had no energy. It was very, just a heavy state of mind. And for the first couple of weeks of the retreat, I was very uncomfortable with it. I was really trying to fix it, trying to make it better, trying to avoid it, trying to uh, arouse something that was more familiar with the opening of a three-month retreat. A lot of excitement, a lot of energy, a lot of uh, interest. But I wasn't there. It just didn't feel that way that year. But at some point, after a couple of weeks, I realized that I don't really even know if I thought at the time that it was that I was going through some sort of a grieving process. But I just was able to acknowledge how dark my heart and mind felt and to uh, not let it be a break on my energy or not let it be the, uh, the total dampening of my energy but rather to just mm, being able to acknowledge it uh, let it be okay without having to fix it, without having to change it, without looking for um, some antidote to it, but also without just acting it out. This is the power of mindfulness. This is the, the ability of mindfulness to just be with things as they are, not acting them out and not um, expecting them to change or even wanting them to change. If we fall into the trap or the, the, the understanding 
as it feels, this could last forever. And it comes, especially with depression. This is going to last forever. If we believe that, we'll give up. We have to bring our practice into you know, a really crisp moment-to-moment recognition of the way things are. And be careful not to get caught in kind of extending this moment indefinitely into the future. Believing that the way I'm feeling today is the way it's going to be the rest of the retreat. Let's hope not. And it won't be. But we need to support our practice by the understanding of knowing that it's not. Practice is about playing the edge, going to the place where we feel uncomfortable, whether it's with pain or depression or fear, jealousy, opening to that place where We just don't feel comfortable. But yet we're willing to stay there with some care and attention to what is going on there. If we don't act out, if we recognize we don't act out, and we have this understanding, then a tremendous amount of energy is released at the edge, at the place where we have to stretch. And it happens. You know, in retreat we do build up a tremendous amount of energy. But it's the energy that's needed to find a new way of responding to this situation. So we recognize We exercise some restraint. We reframe our understanding of the aversion. And then we reveal their characteristics. Now each moment has its own unique taste. Depression is different than anger. Anger is different than fear. Fear is different than irritation, and they're all different than from jealousy. But all of these forms of aversion has their own flavor, has their own taste. And the way to open to it is to bring our attention to what's happening, to connect with and to sustain our attention on the momentary experience. This morning, I got a fax from a printing company back in Maui where we were having some some brochures printed. And they had faxed me a proof uh, to see if it was correct. And it's been a long process to to get this thing to the printer. And I thought it was fine. And when I got the facts, I realized it wasn't yet. And I could feel this aversive reaction come bubbling up. First there was frustration, then there was disappointment, and then there was anger, then there was rage. And it just, it just, I just wanted to get on the phone as quick as I could. Mm-hmm. Luckily I didn't. It was still in the middle of the night. <laughs> <laughs> But I could feel this, this just wanting to respond, wanting just to get on the phone and say, not yet. But in that just sitting with, just, just being with, 
I began to feel how tense and the tight the body feels and, you know, the, 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 the vibration, the energy, and the mind just spinning out and wanting to judge and blaming and... And then something shifted, thank goodness. And I said, okay, now what's the problem here? One line had been left off. One line. Probably it's just a phone call saying, please put it back in. But until I was able to see that, until I was able to kind of live through the reactivity, because the habits, the habits are really strong, they just come up and they bubble through. If I'd acted, I never would have seen another way. But it's a tremendous amount of energy to hold. The frustration, the anger, the disappointment, the, the blame, the, all of that is just coursing throughout the body and the mind. And somehow we have to hold that. I don't mean hold it like grab onto it. I mean we have to open to it and feel it. And allow for another way of responding to the situation to become known. It takes that much energy to do that. We had a, a month-long retreat on Maui um, in August, and there was a 15-year-old boy who came and did that retreat. And he was, he was really into it. And so in the course of the retreat, you know, we were talking with him, and he told me a story. He said that a few years ago, when he was around 12 or 13, he was walking with some friends down the road, and he was um, in a mood, and he wasn't being nice. This is how he said it. He said, I wasn't being nice. And he said, I saw that when I wasn't being nice, all of my friends started walking away from me. And he said, at that time I realized that not being nice, you know, pushed people away. Or people left when you weren't being nice. So he said, I made a promise to myself that from then on I was going to be nice. Thirteen-year-old boy. Right. And he said, you know, for the last couple of years, he says, I haven't really felt anger towards any of my friends. And he was really, he was really, a, he was not a wimp guy either. He was, he was a typical guy. And, but I really felt a genuine, you know, feeling from him of the value or the importance of not just being nice, but not being aversive. Not being angry, not being irritable, not being uh, rough and abrasive and abusive, harsh in his relationship to others. In the Dhammapada, the Buddha said, Hatred is never appeased by hatred. It is only appeased by loving-kindness. We can never overcome hatred in another by being hateful towards them. No matter how strong the impulse and how right the response seems, Anger is not the appropriate response. It may happen, but we'll see that it doesn't solve anything. It merely um, kind of dumps our anger, and, and somebody else just got to catch it. Joy is the antidote to aversion. Sometimes, we can intentionally uh, manipulate conditions. We, we can put ourselves in, you know, we're, we're having, a, we're having a, a bad day, a down day. We can do something. We can put ourselves in a situation that, that brings us some joy, that brings us some, a little bit of light. And just go outside, have a cup of tea, look at the leaves particularly here. 
do that which brings some uh, joy to you. And this can, by just changing the external conditions, it can uh, lighten the load of an aversive mental state. But not always. Sometimes we just have to persevere. Outlast the aversion. And you know what? We can. We can outlast the unpleasantness. The aversion. We sometimes think we can't. We get caught in this sense of ourself that is so ineffective. So powerless. And yet that's not all that we are. We can persevere. We can overcome our habits. Recognizing aversion, exercising some restraint, reframing our understanding that this too is a place of practice, revealing their individual, their unique characteristics by paying careful attention, and then realizing the impersonality of it. In the course of our opening, hearts, minds, body, we come across a lot that is unfamiliar. And one inevitable reaction is to fear it. We get a glimpse and fear arises. We just uh, feel this paralysis in our minds, in our bodies, that just cannot, will not go forward. We feel insecure, we feel unstable, we feel vulnerable. And we don't really want to look. Whether it's the fear of staying here for another two weeks or eight weeks, whatever it is, or the fear of going home, or the fear of going to an interview, or the fear of not getting an interview, it, it really doesn't matter. When we don't look at what's causing the fear, it becomes a huge uh, shadow in our vision. It just becomes such a bugaboo. I had a teacher in uh, Malaysia when I was practicing. Whenever anybody would come in with fear, talking about fear, he'd say, bring it into the room. Show me. Show me this thing that you're afraid of. This person, this feeling, this event, this whatever it is. In, in Malaysia, they have a lot of ghosts, or they think they do. And so he said, bring that, bring that ghost in here. I want to see him. And it was really a, a technique for just saying, take a look at what you're really afraid of. What is it that we fear? The fear is far worse than experiencing that thing itself. The fear of pain, you know, the fear of the pain in the knee, the back. It can appear insurmountable, unbelievable. And yet when we do finally turn and take a look, not so bad. Not so bad. One time when I was in Burma, in 1988, of course, there was this, the political uprising, and it was a very unstable uh, situation. And there was at one point, uh, the, the organizers of the retreat center where I was staying called all of the foreign uh, yogis there to come to a meeting. And so there was 15 or 20 of us sitting around the table, and they told us that the situation is really grave. You know, there's... Uh, you know, political instability, and uh, there's not much food because the, the farmers weren't bringing the products into the city. Uh, the water was running out, and it was just... And the uh, ambassador had called and asked 
or somebody from the embassy had called and asked all foreigners to leave the country. Well, you know, when you when you're in Burma and you hear that, it it's quite alarming, actually. <laughs> and you couldn't help but feel a tremendous amount of fear and anxiety and agitation and just the unknown. It was so boiling over. And it was hard to practice. But what are you going to do? You're in Burma. And the only thing you can do at this place is, is practice. So you sit with it. Unless you leave. Most people left. Uh, but I, I said, well, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just stay and see what happens. And it was kind of exciting, actually. And so as I stayed with it and just went through the hours of, of this particular crisis and the days of the continuing crisis, it's not permanent. It's not a steady state. It's not an ever-present feeling that we have. Fear comes, fear goes. It comes again, it goes again. What we see is that, yes, there are conditions in our life, in the world, that fear might be an appropriate response. To be cautious, at least to be cautious, to be careful. And yet, it's not there all the time. If we don't pay careful attention, we'll believe it's there all the time. If we pay careful attention, we'll see when it's not there. Or we see, and we see, I should say, that we don't control it. Sometimes fear comes, and we see, we know where it's coming from. Sometimes fear comes, and we don't. We don't know where it's coming from. We don't know what we're afraid of. We're just contracted, we're paralyzed. All we can do is pay attention. Suzuki Roshi again. Without accepting the fact that everything changes, we cannot find perfect composure. But unfortunately, although it is true, it is difficult to accept. Because we cannot accept the truth of transiency, we suffer. Very important to begin to see the impermanence of all of these states of aversion to see through them, to understand that they come, they last for a while, they go. We don't need to fix them. We don't need to get rid of them. We don't need to solve them. We don't need to change them. We only have to outlast them. And that we can do. We can't fix the world so that it's not unpleasant. We may not be able to stop our reactions of fear of anger, of irritation, of impatience. But we don't have to act them out. And we can outlast them. And in that hanging in there, outlasting, a powerful transformation occurs. We actually learn to let go. Let, letting go is not getting rid of, nor is it fixing. It's seeing that things come and things go. The unpleasantness comes, and it goes. The aversion comes, and it too goes. We don't need to claim it. We don't need to fix it. Anger, irritation, impatience, fear. Powerful forces in our life. Unpleasant conditions. We don't need to suffer with them. If we can begin to recognize them, exercise a little restraint, reframe our understanding, see into their true nature, and that they are impermanent, they're unsatisfying, they have a life of their own, let them come, let them go. Remain at ease. So let's sit for a moment. 